the Gilda's maximum lawyers community of legal entrepreneurs who are taking their businesses and lives to the next level. As a Guild member, you'll build relationships, be held accountable, and learn strategies specifically designed to get you unstuck and accelerate your plan for growth. Members are also granted exclusive access to masterminds hosted around the country. Our next event is coming up, and we're heading to Scottsdale, Arizona. There's something truly magical about the power of these in-person connections where real-time breakthroughs happen. Picture this. You're surrounded by like-minded law firm owners tackling your business and mindset challenges together. The energy is electric, the insights are transformative, and the results are game-changing. Investing in yourself is the best decision you'll ever make. The knowledge, strategies, and breakthroughs you'll gain are priceless assets that will supercharge your practice and propel you forward. Join the Guild and secure your ticket to Scottsdale at the best possible price by visiting maxlawevents.com. You know, lawyers are human, meeting the needs of humans. And because of that, everything that we bring to all of our human relationships, all of our fears, all of our resources, all of our strengths are going to come out in our relationships with our clients, with our referral sources, with our opponents. And so who we are as people directly impacts who we are as lawyers and who we are as lawyers doing the business of law. Run your law firm the right way. This is the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Maximum Lawyer Podcast. Your hosts, Jim Hacking and Tyson Mutrix. Let's partner up and maximize your firm. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. I'm Jim Hacking. And I'm Tyson Mutrix. What's up, Jimmy? Tyson, my friend, good morning. It's good to talk to you. It seems like it's been a while. Yeah, and it really hasn't. We just talked last week, not too long ago, but uh, we've not seen each other in person for a few weeks, so maybe that's what it is. So how you been? I've been great. We had a fun weekend. We went to the Cardinal game yesterday, and we went out to dinner with my dad. My dad's getting older, so we all went out to talk about that, and it was a a good, relaxing weekend. But, you know, sometimes it's better to get back in the office because there's so much activity with the kids and everything that sometimes I feel it's sort of quieter here. Yeah, I get that too. It's it's sometimes nice to be in the office and whenever no one's around, you can kind of get some stuff done or at least focus or concentrate. So it's kind of nice. All right, Jim, we've got a guest this week. You want to introduce her? Yeah, I'm really excited to have her. She's a LPC and a JD. Her name is Karen Caffrey. I'm not sure exactly how Karen came on our radar, but I think with the Connecticut connection that it might have been our friend Ryan McKean. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, so Ryan is in my mini mastermind for Mastermind Experience, and he actually did make the introduction, so that's where that came in. So, Karen, you've got an interesting journey. You want to talk a little bit about how you got from law school to where you are now? Sure thing. I, well, I began my professional career as a lawyer. I went straight from college to law school. I went to the University of Connecticut, and I did practice law for 10 years. I did five years in private practice doing sort of corporate and general law, and then I transitioned into a Fortune 100 company. And basically what happened is I got into my own therapy, my own psychotherapy for my own personal healing, and it was incredibly meaningful to me and very transformative. And what it came down to is law just didn't make my heart sing. I think I was a good lawyer, but I didn't love it. And I loved my personal work in therapy, and I decided I really wanted to do professional work that had deep meaning for me. So while I was practicing law, I went back to school and I got 
a master's in counseling psychology and uh, became a licensed professional counselor. And I've been having a private practice as a counselor for, wow, uh, 27 years. And I do a lot of work with trauma, but I specialize in counseling lawyers. So I've kept that connection with the legal community. Uh, I love working with lawyers. And um, that's how I got here today is, uh, through, yes, through the Connecticut connection and because I do work with lawyers. I think that it's interesting that you're an expert in trauma and in helping lawyers. I think there's a connection there. I think that the practice of law can be traumatic. And, you know, we take on a lot of the burdens from our clients. And we've had some interesting discussions in the Facebook group where people talk about about that, about this responsibility that we take on really in, in many of the things that we do as lawyers where we're holding our clients' lives in our hands. And so what are some things that lawyers should be thinking about as they're going through their week and dealing with clients and all of their frustrations? Well, in general, one of the things I help lawyers focus on is uh, lawyer well-being, which is a real hot topic in the law right now. I think I sent you guys a link to the National Task Force on Lawyer Well-Being. They published a report last year, and it, it chronicles a lot of really long standing issues that the legal profession has been struggling with. You named one of them, and that is the pressures and responsibilities of, you know, handling people's legal problems, but frankly, also the emotional problems that go along with that. And to some extent, that depends on the kind of law you practice. Somebody who's practicing perhaps family law or criminal law is going to be perhaps feeling the emotional stressors of their client's lives more than someone who's maybe, maybe you know, practicing corporate law. But well-being encompasses a whole lot of things. And if I were to say the one goal that I hope to, to sort of uh, discuss and, and put on the table with, with you guys today is that it's something that should be on every, every lawyer's radar screen. Their own well-being, the well-being of their colleagues, the well-being of the people in their firm. I think for many years, certainly when I began practicing, you know, a couple of decades ago, well-being and mental health of lawyers was sort of like the poor cousin. As a matter of fact, when I began practicing, Connecticut didn't even have a lawyer's assistance program. We were actually I'm embarrassed to say the last state in the union to get one. And what the task force says, and what is really true, is that, you know, you can't be a good lawyer if you're not a healthy lawyer. There are very high rates of depression, um, high being about about 28% of lawyers report depression. There's, there's uh, alcoholism. There's all the things people do, lawyers do, to cope with the tremendous amount of stress that they're under. So the very first thing is saying, by the way, my well-being not only matters to me personally, it matters to me as a lawyer and it matters to my clients. So that's sort of a 5,000-foot comment on that. I can get that into the more specifics of the kinds of things people can do if you want good segue because I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper into that. So what does it mean to be sure. healthy? What does that mean to actually be healthy? It's multifaceted. There's a physical aspect, a spiritual aspect, a work aspect. It's hard to be healthy when you're, if you're not, if you can't make enough money to earn a living. I, of course, tend to focus on the mental health and emotional aspect, the psychological aspect. It's someone who is suffused with a sense of well-being, who is able to perform their days in general with in a good mood, who are someone who is functional, someone who is sleeping well, feeling well, you know, generally operating on all four cylinders, so to, uh, so to speak. It's a little bit individualistic. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of the first questions a person is to ask themselves is, do I feel healthy? Like if you were just to ask yourself right now, do I feel well? And you might go, oh gosh, you know, I'm really tired. I only got five hours sleep last night. Or maybe I'm, maybe I feel great. Maybe I got eight hours sleep. Maybe I'm needing that fourth cup of coffee to be awake. 
maybe I haven't seen my spouse in five days or we had an argument and I haven't paid attention to it. Maybe I'm hungover. You know, maybe I've been drinking heavily over the weekend. So asking that question, there could be an individual answer. There is an individual answer, but health can cover a whole range of aspects because we are we are complex people. We have a whole range of, of, of silos in our life, any one of which, if it isn't working, uh, is detrimental to our health and, frankly, detrimental to our ability to, to practice law. Back in 2003, 2004, I was experiencing all kinds of stress. We had our second son, and I was working full-time as an associate attorney, and I remember how stressful it was, and I remember I, I was driving my wife insane, so she asked me to consider going to counseling, and I've been going to counseling ever since. So I think that therapy, weekly therapy, really helps, but I think that there's a lot of uh, stigma attached to it. I also think lawyers think that they're tough and they don't they don't need that. And I also think that they're worried or afraid of what's actually going to happen when they go to therapy. Can you talk to the listeners a little bit about people, maybe what they should be thinking about as they're considering going into therapy and then what they can actually expect in therapy, how it sort of works? Right. So I'm going to say two things. First of all, you just named the two major impediments to why certainly people in general, but lawyers are reluctant to go to therapy. And the first is stigma, the fear that somehow they're going to be judged, particularly if they're weak or, you know, not as good as the other guy or woman. And the second is the fear around confidentiality. And so the first thing I'll say is every therapist is bound by ethical codes of confidentiality, as are all the statutory, uh, the enabling statutes for lawyers assistance programs. So a great deal of effort is put into keeping this process confidential. When you go to see a therapist, I mean, the first session, the first question I ask people is, you know, what brought you here? How can I help you? And there's usually, like you, like for you, Jim, there's a precipitating problem. It could be something like uh, some people will say, my wife says I have to be here, or my husband says I have to be here. Or, you know, somebody brought an attention to the, uh, some problems to their attention, like actually approached them or confronted them. You know, my feeling about somebody who's coming to therapy is that I think it takes courage. I'm very respectful of people who come into my office, of the, the courage that it took to take that first step. A first session is basically just a conversation. I mean, this is not some sort of, uh, or shouldn't be, you know, some sort of clinical judgmental evaluation. It's a conversation. What's going on in your life? What's working for you and what isn't working for you? And actually, the best therapy focuses on resources that a person has. You know, what are the strengths in your life? What What is working for you? You know, every lawyer, to get through law school, you've got to be intelligent. You've got to work hard. You've got to be driven. You know, lawyers in general are a very resourceful population. It's one of the reasons I like working for them. They have they tend, to be, they tend to be very smart. They tend to be hardworking. They tend to be curious, you know, willing to look at whatever's going on. But, but we'll do a full assessment. You know, the person will say, well, here's what brought me here. And we'll go through their life. You know, what is working? Where are your stressors? You know, there's some very common things with lawyers. They tend to work too hard. They tend to overwork. I'm thinking of um, one attorney I saw. One of the, there's a few standard questions I'll ask people. And one is, when was the last time you took a vacation? And the guy who gets, got the gold medal in this, he said, and this is a, actually a very high-functioning guy. He said, I haven't had a vacation in seven years. And after I picked myself up off the floor, we had a conversation about that. It was amazing that he was still, still functioning. And, and, and that's unusual to go that long. But that's the kind of thing that, that, for example, that a lawyer or the lawyers 
might be skipping on in terms of their well-being. They have a hard time resting or finding a way to carve time out of their life to rest and perceiving that as a priority and an importance for their functioning, not just for their their subjective well-being, but for their, their functioning and their competence as a lawyer. So Karen, at least my job, and I think most lawyers in particular, we have really, really high highs and really, really low lows. And so sometimes it can be hard to balance those. For example, I try cases and so you can have I mean, a huge victory and you feel like you're on top of the mountain or you could have a client where you know, they go to prison. You know, it, it could be terrible. So what are your tips on managing those highs and those lows? Yeah, what you're really talking about is how do I handle emotions? You know, one of the things about law in general is that lawyers are discouraged from being emotional. And we're trained out of it. We're trained into the, we're all about our minds. We're all about cognition. So the answer would be, you know, first of all, finding a person or persons. And it could be, it doesn't actually have to be a therapist. It could be a spouse. It could be a colleague. Someone you can talk to honestly, openly about what it feels, first of all, what it feels like to celebrate. Because believe it or not, even celebrating is Obviously, it can be stressful if you, you go out and drink too much or, you know, get overwhelmed by, by the emotions of, believe it or not, happiness. But especially the losses, the, the client that goes to jail, the big case that is lost after months of working on it. Can you grieve? Is it okay to feel sad? Can you feel safe? Is there somebody in your life who you feel comfortable sharing your non-gained faith with, with the emotions that go along with that? And a lot of people, my lawyers will say, no, they don't. They're just so afraid of being judged, of losing faith, of, of, the, of the emotions themselves. They're afraid of getting overwhelmed. And this is one place where actually having a therapist or a counselor can be kind of a safe harbor or safe haven for bringing some of those more intense emotions that maybe you don't feel safe sharing with someone else. I will say that one of my goals as a therapist is to help people find ways to cultivate relationships with the important people in their life so they can share those emotions. In other words, therapy is a place to share them, but you want, what you want to do is develop the ability to share these with other people. So it's not just your therapist, but you have other resources or the people in your life to feel safe with. And if you don't, what's that about? What's it about that you're living a life where you have to keep your game face on all the time? So a little bit of a long answer, what do you do with the highs and the lows? Highs and lows bring emotions. Emotions, we're supposed to feel emotions. We're designed as human beings to feel emotions. And so if we can't, if we either, if we feel unsafe feeling them, if we feel unsafe sharing with someone else, or if we engage in behaviors to, to depress those emotions, we lose the case, we, out, we go out, we use a substance, or we avoid it, we just, you know, you know, knuckle down and forget it happened and overwork and don't deal with it. Those things tend to back up. And then what happens is if you don't deal with your emotions, you get a symptom. You get depressed, you get an anxiety disorder, and that, that's the long-term effect of not finding a healthy way to deal with those emotional highs and those emotional lows. We're talking today with Karen Caffrey. She's a licensed professional counselor and a lawyer, and we're having a really good discussion. I'm excited that you're here, Karen. One thing I wanted to talk about was suicide, and I opened up the Maximum Lawyer Conference this year by talking about one of my mentors from even before I went to law school and then all through law school and then after law school, he was a very successful plaintiff's attorney here in St. Louis who ended up killing himself at around the age of 60. Mm -hmm. And I wonder often, you know, I love these lawyer lunches that we have here. Here's my idea of a typical lawyer lunch. Hey, Tyson, how are you doing? I'm good, Jim. How are you? Busy? Yeah, I'm busy. 
And then we talk about cases for about 25 minutes, eat as fast as we can, and then we're back to work. How can, how can, lawyers, how can lawyers have more serious conversations? What are the questions we should be asking each other? The way the questions are obvious, the hard thing is doing it. The, the question is like, how are you really doing? Are you having any struggles? Is there anything, you know, is there anything that you are struggling with that you're not talking about to anybody else? You know, it's a, um, yeah, there's, some, there's a great and popular uh, writer and researcher now named Renee Brown. She's a professor out of the University of Houston. She's read, written a lot of good books about, actually about vulnerability, daring greatly, the gifts of imperfection. And she talks about how difficult it is to be vulnerable, but how important it is to be vulnerable. Because the question simply is, how are you really doing? What's going on? Are you having any problems that you, that, 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 you know, you want to talk about? Or frankly, sharing your own problems. Sometimes the best way to invite somebody into a deeper conversation is to deepen it for ourselves. You know, how are you doing, Jim? How are you doing? I'm great. Lots of cases. How are you doing? Oh, you know, I've just been feeling so down lately. Some mornings I feel like I can't get out of bed. Or I don't know. I've been drinking a lot more lately. I'm, I'm a little worried I might have a problem. So that, but that requires vulnerability. So it's taking that risk wisely. You might not do this with somebody you don't know. You do this with somebody that you're getting to know or that you've gotten to know, let me put it that way. But it's about, it's about asking the next deeper level of personal question or offering the next deeper level of personal disclosure. Both of those are likely to invite a deeper conversation. And then the other thing I'll say is, especially with something like suicide, is don't be afraid to ask the question, particularly if you notice something going wrong. We are, to some extent, our brothers and sisters keepers. We are a community, we should be a community of people who care about each other. Is somebody not looking well? You know, are they coming into work late? Do they look exhausted? Have you noticed alcohol on their breath? You know, it's a sign of caring, or it certainly could and should be a sign of caring to bring these questions up with people we, when we see something going wrong or see something that we, that's concerning rather than to pretend that it's not going on. There are, every state, by the way, has a lawyer's assistance program and put a call into the lawyer's assistance program. As a matter of fact, one, it's one of the calls that I'm, I'm told from our, our person here that one of the most frequent calls is one lawyer or judge calling about another. Hey, I'm seeing that so-and-so is having a problem. And this is if you don't feel like you can, you can bring it up yourself with a person. And this is what's happening. And sometimes what will happen is the, the, the lab person can make that call for you and say, hey, we've heard you have a, we, you know, we've, we've heard some concerns. And again, this isn't about punishment. It isn't about censure. It isn't about judgment. It's about caring for those around us. So anyways, that's, a, that's kind of a long answer, and it's the, the, the tragic consequence of not asking these questions is, as you say, these, uh, the unfortunate, the tragic uh, number of lawyers and others who commit suicide because either they hit it really, really well, they never asked for help, or nobody noticed. Darren, I've had lots of conversations with Ryan about the sessions that he's had with you, and he, he seems to really get a, a great benefit from it. And something that uh, he wanted to make sure that I brought up to you was just about, you know, a lot of these sessions, some of the sessions are about, you know, lawyers being sad and depressed, but a lot of it has nothing to do with that. And a lot of it has to do with how therapy is necessary for the growth of the business and getting your personal and professional visions together. Can you talk a little bit more about the business side of therapy? 
Oh, that's interesting. You know, I don't know if all other therapists work like this. I have, because I was a lawyer, and frankly, just because I have a personal interest in in business and marketing stuff, it's something that I find that lawyers who come to me that we end up doing a lot of, of conversation about. Now, now, the nexus is, the nexus between, let's say, the business of law and psychotherapy is a lot of the challenges that lawyers face in having a good business of law come from psychological reasons. Let me see if I can think of some examples. They, let's say they lack some technological expertise and they feel fear and they feel stuck. Oh, you know, I have no idea how to get this kind of tech system going. I'm like, well, you know, uh, reach out for a consultant. Oh, I'm afraid I'll look stupid. There's lots of sort of fear-driven emotional factors that keep lawyers from doing the things they need to do to become what you guys are calling a maximum lawyer. You know, so that's the nexus there. So some of what I do is, you know, because I'm aware of it, talk to them about different kinds of things they can do to improve the business of their law. But most of what it is, is what are their psychological impediments that keep them from using the tools or taking the steps that would help them have a better legal business? Social social anxiety, which sounds, it's almost a cliche in my business, but to be a good lawyer, you need to be in some ways like out in the world. You need to be able to go to meetings, to network with people, to have social connection, to have a human relationship. One of your podcasts, it was a woman, her name is Billy, and I can't remember her last name, but at the very end of the interview she talked about, she was, she was a very tech-oriented person, talked about some great data that she was collecting. At the very end, she goes, you know, once you get this all in a row, it comes down to the human connection. You know, lawyers are humans meeting the needs of humans. And because of that, everything that we bring to all of our human relationships, all of our fears, all of our resources, all of our strengths are going to come out in our relationships with our clients, with our referral sources, with our opponents. And so who we are as people directly impacts who we are as lawyers and who we are as lawyers doing the business of law. Karen, I think it's funny. So my therapist was not a lawyer, but she sees a lot of lawyers and she's always trying to juggle our schedule so they don't see each other in the waiting room because she doesn't want to out us Uh, being her client. But my question for you, it's really about sort of that mindset of, you know, I do spend a lot of time at my sessions with my therapist talking about the business and about, you know, trying to infuse the lessons that I learned about myself into the business and sort of, you know, I have blind spots. And so one of the great things about therapy for me has been to to sort of help me identify my blind spots and maybe places where I'm stuck. And I think, I think that getting stuck is really, you know, lawyers can really find themselves in a rut. I suppose most people can, but it just seems to me that the practice of law really allows us to sort of get stuck. And what are some tips that people might take to to get unstuck, uh, maybe short of going to therapy? Ask two or three people you trust what they see are the reasons for you being stuck. Uh, And by the way, or what they see is your growth areas. And most people find this... I'm just I'm being honest with you, like a very difficult thing to do because it makes you so vulnerable. But really, the people who know you best are the people who are seeing you every day. I mean, even a great therapist, if you've got somebody coming once a week, I only see you an hour a week. Uh, not everybody comes every week. So even, despite my training, despite an ongoing relationship, you know, the therapist isn't seeing you in your day-to-day life. Ask to put people in your office. You know, ask somebody who's working with you every day. Uh, you know, what do you see as my biggest challenge? 
what do you see? You know, I'm feeling stuck. Do you have any suggestions for me? What, how am, here's a really, how am I impacting you? If you feel your anxiety level going up, you, would, you wouldn't be alone. How am I impacting you? And, and what you want to do is you want to say, how am I impacting you in a positive way? Because you want to get some positives here, because I'm sure you are impacting somebody in a positive way. Is there any way that I'm impacting you in a negative way? Is there any way I could impact you differently? So what you're looking for, the people around you are mirrors. Ideally, they're kind mirrors. And of course, if somebody's working for you, that makes it a little bit of a complication because of the differential in the power relationship. So you could do that with someone who's working with you. You want to ask that for your peer, from, from a peer. Um, and so here's my dilemma. So like I'm stuck around this. And, and you know, what are you stuck around? You can't take the next step in your marketing. You can't take the next step in your practice. Um, so basically the answer is without a therapist, turn to your trusted people in your life. You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed what people, uh, your people close to you see about you that they're not saying. And we're socially, as a, as a culture, we're, we're, we tend to be socially conditioned, if we're being quote unquote polite, to not say what we're really seeing or to lack the skill in, in expressing it. That's a big problem for not just lawyers, but for a lot of people. Often we see what's going on with somebody else, but because we're close to them and we're frustrated by whatever they're doing, uh, we, we don't let, we, we're not skillful in, in communicating that. Well, you're always doing this. You know, you, you drive crazy when you do that rather than, um, you know, wow, what I see is, you know, every day, you know, you come in here and you, you know, you don't have a smile on your face and you sit alone in your office for an hour looking at your, you know, your worst thing first. Is it, you know, but let's talk about some other way you could do that, another way you could start your day, another way you could be planful about your day. Right, that's a little bit of a long answer to uh, if you don't have a therapist or a coach, turn to somebody close to you. They're with you. They live with you. They see you. Karen, let me yeah. use a word that I don't really like using much, you know, work-life balance. But I want to talk a little bit about it just when it comes to uh, working hours and time off and things like that. Have you read anything in your research that shows that you shouldn't work over a certain number of hours each week and that you should take a certain number of days off each year? Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the number of hours you should be working and then the the amount of time off people should be taking? No, I haven't read any research, but I'm, I'm, I don't know why you don't like that term, Tyson, but neither do I. And I thought about that, um, actually, I was thinking about the past couple of weeks. The reason I don't like it is that it suggests a dichotomy between work and life, as if these are two separate things and it implies, and implies a conflict between them, as if there's... It's one or the other. You have to balance these two opposing force, forces rather than looking as, at a person as an integrated self, as a complex, interrelated mosaic of all sorts of different capacities. So that's the first thing I would say. I, I don't like the idea. I have concern, let's put it that way, that those two things could be looked at as an opposition rather than as a sort of a fluid connection of how a person flows through life. In terms of the number of hours, it's funny. I was watching Tony Robbins' movie, I'm Not Your Guru, last night. Oh, my goodness. That man, his life is his work. I mean, that may, I've never seen something with that much energy. He's an amazing guy. So to your question, like, how, like, is there a specific number of hours? I would say no. I would say, at least in my experience, it depends a lot on the person. And is that what I would say, is that person well? Does that person experience well-being? Do the people around that person experience well-being? I can, you know, there are people who are able to fire on all cylinders and, you know, quote unquote work 50, 60 hours a week, 
maybe more, and still feel vibrant and full of energy. I'm pulling out Tony Robbins as an example. I think that man, he just seems, from the outside, he seems to just have this very full, energized, well life. I think he's an outlier. I think most people, uh, organismically, physiologically, everybody has a point at which they have stimulated their nervous system, let's put it that way, to the point where they need to stop the stimulation and allow the, their bodies and their minds to rest, to rejuvenate. That would be a thing that everybody is part of well-being. Every person needs to be bring awareness to. So for some people, frankly, you know, 20 hours of quote-unquote work a week would fill them to capacity of that for that kind of stimulation. And they would say, okay, that if you do more than that, you're going you're gonna to start experiencing a lack of well-being. For some people, it could be 60. And I'm not saying there isn't research out there. There probably is. I just haven't read it. But the question for a person to be asking himself is, that is what, not what is the magical number of hours. Now I've reached 40, so that's, you know, that's too much or that's too little. But how am I doing? How, what do I need as an individual to function at my capacity and still feel well and still be well in all of its capacity, all of its uh, meanings, well as uh, doing good work, being physically well, being emotionally well, having relationships that are well, feeling spiritually well. And certainly as we do our emotional work, and to go back to the idea of trauma, because every, almost everybody is carrying some sort of trauma from their past. As we heal our trauma, our capacity increases so we can handle more, uh, live more in life. And so, and of course, I think, I think most people, if we took with the maximum lawyer word, most people want to live to their maximum wellness. So there's, we certainly are, I certainly am looking to increase my capacity to live in life and to enjoy life and to do whatever it is that I want to do in, in, in the period of time I'm here uh, on this earth. But I, I'm not aware of a magical number to summarize that. I think the question more is, when am I experiencing my maximum well-being and then work backwards from that as to how many hours a week I'm doing what? Working, exercising, sleeping, spending time in community or relationships, going to my church. Karen, so for me, I agree that the work-life balancing is something that's sort of beaten to death. And But one thing that I noticed over the last year that I've been getting better about is sort of having sort of boundaries around my time. So this, this little thing that I carry around in my pocket, it's supposedly a phone, but really it's like a taskmaster. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's in email inbox overflow and tasks and everything. I mean, I was laughing today, like my whole law firm is in this phone. Like we, I can get all, every case, I could look at anything, anywhere, anytime on this little device. And so to me, that, that's been the biggest obstacle to having sort of clear time at home, clear time at work, clear time on client-focused stuff, clear time on business-focused stuff. And so you got any tips on sort of keeping the, the phone at bay? Right. All I could think of is I hope you have two-factor author, uh, authentication on your phone. There's, there's practical tips, like it's pra uh, which I can mention, and then there's emotional tips. Practical tips like external things is, first of all, have two phones is, is one thought. Uh, most people don't do this now. We have this one smartphone and our business and our personal stuff comes in on the same phone. You could have two. You could have a business phone. And so you put that one when you don't want to be doing business, you know, a dedicated phone with a dedicated phone number, dedicated email. You literally have a physical object that's a separate phone. So you put that phone down and walk away with it or walk away from it. And then all you have is your personal phone with you. I think a lot of people have a hard time doing that. They tend to have 
there's a there's a mixture, there's an overlap, and they tend to be getting work stuff on their personal phones. You can, believe it or not, people are shocked to hear this, you can put your phone down. Very few people know this. I literally do not take my phone upstairs when I go upstairs at night. I have a bedtime routine. I go up, take my bath, read a book, whatever. I leave my phone downstairs. And this, we live in a, especially younger people, this is almost a strange concept to them. It is actually not physically necessary to have our phones in our presence all the time. And I, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be saying that in a, a derogatory way, but I literally mean like this is information to some people. You can put your phone down and walk away from it. And if there actually is an emergency, Jim, I think you're more my age and you may remember the time when not only were there not smartphones and cell phones, there were phones that didn't have answering machines. And like if somebody called and you weren't there, then they waited. They didn't get you. And if it was a real emergency, someone got in their car and drove to your house and said, hey, you have a real emergency. So these are literally uh, tactical, practical ways, you know, walk away from your phone, mute it, turn it off, you know, like literally turn it off. And here's the problem with all those things. These are, in some way, these are sort of common sense suggestions. The harder problems are the emotional and psychological barriers to that. You know, there's this, because of the immediacy technology, and I'm not saying anything that's given news to any of your listeners, but there is sort of this implied expectation that we're supposed to be available 24-7. We're supposed to respond to somebody else. We're supposed to be available to respond to somebody else's needs all the time. Now, just think of that as a relationship. You know, if your wife or spouse, whatever husband said to you, you're supposed to be available to me all the time. Like, I don't know about you, but I'd go, I'd be taken back. I'm like, what? Like, don't I get to like brush my own teeth? Don't I get to go like go for a walk? That's an imbalance. That's an imbalanced interpersonal relationship to live as if somebody is available upon demand. Now, that's different as if you actually, you know, there are, we have 911 services, and there, there certainly are some legal practices where a system needs to be put in place so that, you know, the lawyer can be available in some way for maybe certain criminal practices, some sort of emergency call, there needs to be some system. But this, this, this concept and this emotional belief that we're supposed to be, a lawyer is supposed to be, you know, available 24-7. That's, that's not human. That's not healthy. That's not going to cultivate anybody's well-being. So with somebody who's struggling with, with, with putting their phone down, with turning it off, with having the boundaries around their phone, those are psychological things that need some work around. Where, where did you get this, you know, what's going on that you feel this imperative in a relationship to be completely available to another person that your needs are so low in the priority that they always have to go second to this other person's needs. So that's the psychological piece, and that's the piece that needs to get worked on if, as a business matter, a lawyer is having a hard time putting systems in place so they don't have to be, they don't personally have to be available 24-7. I think, uh, Jim, you, in responding one of your emails, um, your auto response, uh, you're making an effort to put that you have something sitting like your auto generate email that you only look at emails twice a day. Did I, do I recall that correctly? Yeah. Tyson and I both have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, I think I heard you say in one of your podcasts that you actually may peak at other times, but that's a good tactic to educate clients or others. Like here's, here's when I, what you're basically saying is here's when I'm available to respond to your need. And if you have emergency, an emergency, you can call my staff person. 
So some of it is setting up those symptoms. The deeper issue, and this is what I find for um, in therapy, I'm thinking of a soul that I work with. I think we worked for a year on, on, on getting him to like literally put his phone down. He couldn't, he literally could not put his phone down and walk away from it. And that's a psychological issue. That's an emotional issue. It's not a, uh, it's not a practice issue. Or if it is a practice issue, it means you need some systems in place so that you don't literally have to carry your phone all the time. And if you have, you either need help putting systems in place or if you put them in place and you still can't put your phone down, that has, that, that problem has some deeper, uh, deeper territory to look at. All right, Karen, you've given us a ton of information. This has been a really good podcast, but I do want to be respectful of your time, so I'm going to wrap things up. Before we get to our tips and our hack of the week, I do want to remind everyone to go to the Facebook group, get in there, get involved with the discussion. A lot of great information there. And then also, if you'll please give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, that would be great. Jimmy, what's your hack of the week? So in light of our great discussion today with Karen, I'm going to highlight something that I've been doing this year. So we are in the 33rd week of the year now that we're recording this episode. And I would say probably 20 of the Wednesdays of the 33 weeks I have taken completely off. I've unplugged. I've, I've gotten away from the phone. I've gotten away from the computer, away from the office. And I've had these free days where I just sort of go with the flow, do what I want, go for a hike, go see a movie. And when I come back, it's been great because the office keeps running, things keep moving, new clients are signing up, case work's getting done, and and I'm getting sort of freed to think about things, to do the kind of work that I need to be doing and just relax because even on the weekends, I don't get to relax. And so having those Wednesdays right in the middle of the week really makes the time in the office more important so I, I, I don't goof around. And and then when I get that free time, it's it's just been great for clearing my brain out. I like it. That's really good. That's also pretty bold to do. That's 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 pretty crazy. I, I can't imagine at this point taking off the Wednesdays every week. Is that right? Every week except for three out of the thirty-three. No, it's been twenty of the thirty-three. Oh, twenty of the thirty-three. That's still quite a bit. That's hard to hard to imagine for me. But anyways, Karen, I understand you have a tip for us. I do. I want to congratulate Jim on his Olympic well-being. That's incredible and wonderful. And great that you have a you set your your life and your practice up to do that. So my tip of the week would be for to put your uh, every lawyer to put their well-being on their radar screen and to do this by diarying it. You could diary it every day, every day at one o'clock. I'm gonna have a, a ticker that tells me or put it in your calendar. I'm gonna spend five minutes thinking about my well-being and I'm putting I'm deliberately putting that broad because that's different things to different people. Jim's got a whole day of well-being, 20 days or however many days out of 33 weeks. But uh, this is a conscious, a great deal of improving well-being is about putting it on your radar screen and prioritizing it along with everything else. So put in your, whatever it is that you keep track of your time, diary your well-being, five minutes to sit down and think, okay, what do I need to do to be well? And then the next step, of course, is implementing it. But diary your well-being, put it on your own radar screen. Very good. All right. So my tip of the week is actually has to do with productivity and it's a website slash app that I found. I just stumbled upon it last week and it's really kind of cool. It's called Active Track, A-C-T-I-V-T-R-A-K.com. There's also an app. What it allows you to do is it allows you to plug in yourself, your partners, your employees, everyone with a simple tool that you download to your, your computer. It does not work on your phone yet, but they're working on it. But what you can do is 
It just shows your productivity level based upon the apps that you're using, based upon the website that you're going to. It's a really cool tool. It's, it's actually very insightful. You get to see what you're doing on a daily basis with hard numbers. You know, you can sort of, at the end of the day, kind of look back, okay, what did I do today? But you can actually see it, see actually what you're doing. You can see what your employees are doing. It's, it's really kind of cool. So I highly recommend it. It's free for up to three users, so it's pretty neat. Karen, thank you so much for coming on. This has been really awesome. My pleasure. I love the podcast. I love what you guys are doing building this community. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Have a good week. You too. Thanks for listening to the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. To stay in contact with your hosts and to access more content, go to MaximumLawyer.com. Have a great week and catch you next time.